So in Mark chapter 11, we're going to begin in verse number 23, and we'll actually back up just one verse, but what we're going to be talking about here is standing, praying, and believing. You know that God calls us to stand, to pray, and to believe, and when you go through uh, situations of life like we're in, it's more important than ever to stand, to pray, and to believe. But there is an important part of this um, section of Scripture that we're going to get into that is essential for God working in your life. There are things that can hinder God's work. There are things that actually hinder your prayer life. Uh, we see in, um, in, the, in the gospel, in the epistles, we see um, that one of the problems with husbands is that they can have their prayers hindered whenever they don't treat their wives correctly. Uh, and that's one of those things that we often overlook and neglect as believers, but sometimes we pray and things don't happen. And, and sometimes it's because it's not time yet. Uh, sometimes God is waiting us out and sometimes we may not be praying according to his will, but there are other times that we pray and we pray earnestly, but we don't get the results because something has hindered or, or, or stopped, impeded that prayer from becoming effective. Um, and it's really important that we get this. So let's begin in, in Mark chapter 11. We're going to begin in verse number 22. So Mark 11, verse 22 says, Jesus answering saith unto them, have faith in God. Amen. And that's a good person to have faith in is God. Amen. See, we don't have faith in ourselves. We don't have faith in our abilities. Our faith rests in God. Hebrews chapter 12 says that Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. So um, Jesus is just saying, hey, look, get your faith on solid ground. Don't trust the wind or the waves. Don't trust how loud you scream. Trust God. And when you put your faith in God and you do what God asks you to do, you can expect the results that God says you can expect. So let's kind of go through these. Verse number 23, for verily I say unto you. Now, how many of you know that the Bible is still just as powerful as when God wrote it, right? So let's read this. For verily I say unto you, that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but he shall believe those things that he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. This is one of those uh, fundamental scriptures about faith, that the thing that you pray, when you believe it, it will come to pass. That's what the Lord says. The problem is a lot of times we don't pray uh, God's will, and then there's other times that we pray, but we have uh, things in our life that hinder our prayer. Uh, there, And that is a... Uh, something that happens in a lot of people's lives, uh, they, they are not willing to correct the things that the Lord shows them. Verse number 24 says, Therefore I say unto you, whatsoever, what things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. Now watch this next verse. And when you stand praying, so automatically, the Lord said, 
when you pray, if you believe, you're going to receive it. And when you stand praying, meaning I expect you to act on this. I don't expect you to be a quiet believer. I don't expect you to, to pray silently. I expect you to believe. I expect you to stand. I expect you to call those things out, to pray. And look what he says, verse 25. When you stand praying, forgive. Now, that's a complete change of the subject. If we were uh, doing chapters, that'd be a whole new chapter. See, most of the time we say, just have faith, just believe. You, you know, you have all these people, name it, claim it. Name it, claim it. But what does that say? Stand, believe, but also forgive. Forgiving is just as fundamental to seeing your prayer answered as faith is. Now, faith is, is the beginning of it, but if you have unforgiveness, then you're not going to see the effectiveness of your prayer life. The, the prayer of the righteous man availeth much. But when we stand in unforgiveness and we harbor resentment in our lives over whatever issue it may be, you're not going to see the results that God has for you. You'll be just praying and it won't be doing anything, but God wants your prayer life to be effective. Nothing encourages the saint more than when they begin to pray and things begin to change. I, I love my, my wife's story with one of her family members. They prayed for over a year and nothing changed, nothing changed, nothing changed, and then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, the, the life that they were praying for for over a year changed. The effectiveness came to fruition. And, and one of the fundamentals of faith is that when you pray, you must pray with a heart that forgives. Let's finish this verse. It says, when you stand praying, forgive. If you have ought against any, that your Father also, which is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father, which is in heaven, forgive your trespasses. So we see here directly that sin will often hinder uh, the appearance of prayer. How many of you know sometimes whenever you live a life of sin, you don't feel like praying? There's times, in, you know, I love D.L. Moody, and he said, uh, sin will keep you from this book. But this book will keep you from sin. I'll say that again. D.O. Moody said, sin will keep you from the book, and this book will keep you from sin. And whenever we have issues in our life, those, those, those sin issues will often hinder the appearance, or you won't ever see prayer be vibrant in a person's life when they're mired in sin. You see that? So sin will hinder the appearance but listen to this, unforgiveness will hinder its ability or its effectiveness. So if you're mired in sin, you won't even see prayer in somebody's life. But even when somebody's praying, if they have unforgiveness or bitterness in their heart, the effectiveness or the ability of that prayer will be hindered according to the Lord. So he's saying when you pray, you, you need to operate in a heart of forgiveness. You know, the Lord told a parable one time. The parable that he told was about a guy who owed his master. He owed his master, and he couldn't pay it. And, and, and the master was going to put him in jail, but he begged for forgiveness. And when he begged for forgiveness, the master had compassion on him and let him go. 
that servant had someone else that owed him money. And when he came to that other guy, he threw him in jail. He was dealt with him very harshly. And the first master came and dealt very harshly with the other servant. Why? Because to whom forgiveness is given, it's expected that they live in forgiveness. And that's, that's coming from the Lord's parable on earth, in an earthly uh, realm. But when you talk about the forgiveness that God has given to us through the blood of Jesus Christ, he expects us to walk in ultimate forgiveness toward others. We have no business harboring or being resentful against other people when God has been merciful and kind to us. God has given us another opportunity and not one of us, if you're listening to this message, not one of us deserves God's mercy or his forgiveness. But because God loved us, he forgave us through the blood of Jesus Christ. And he expects that we forgive others. As we uh, see here, if you do not forgive, neither will your father in heaven forgive you your trespasses. You know, one of the things that I was uh, praying about over this message is that, that, that the effectiveness of our prayer life is most often hindered when we get involved in situations and we don't really understand why we're in it, we didn't ask for it, but then we begin to blame other people. We begin to hold uh, resentful attitudes and we begin to operate in unforgiveness toward others. And you might say, well, you know, I wouldn't, if somebody owed me money, I would tell them, you know, it's okay. But you know that you can hold unforgiveness toward political leaders. You can hold unforgiveness toward your boss. You can hold unforgiveness to churches. You can hold unforgiveness to a, a, an ex-spouse or uh, somebody who cut you off in traffic. You can hold unforgiveness toward Walmart for only selling you one loaf of bread. There's all kinds of ways that we can extend unforgiveness and it has no place in the life of the believer. The unforgiveness um, has no right in our, in our lives and you know, one of the clearest and best examples of this is Job. Job, the Bible says, was patient, right? Nobody ever prays for the patience of Job. Most of us, you know, we got that warning whenever we were younger. Don't ever pray for the patience of Job, right? Because uh, you don't know how long you're going to have to suffer and wait. But you know, Job was commendable not only because he was patient, but because he heeded the voice of God. And one of the things that we talked about earlier today was the most important and critical thing that you can have when you come on the downside of a mountainside experience is to find the voice of God in that hour. That one of the most important things you can do is get close to the shepherd. That's the safest place you can be. It's to, it's to be as close as you can be to the Lord. But when, when we hear God's voice in our situation, it gives us our bearings again. It, the courage will begin to rise again. Faith will begin to rise again. And, and, and we'll begin to operate the way that God wants us to again. Now, one of the things I want you to see here is in, in the book of Job. So if you'll turn with me to Job, we'll go to chapter 42. It'll be the end of Job, Job 42. Praise the Lord. 
Job 42. Now, most of you know the story of Job, and and we'll go ahead and, and just kind of get into it a little bit. Most of us know the story of Job. Job was a righteous man. Job was a righteous man. And circumstances turned against him. He didn't ask for it. He didn't do anything to deserve it, but the circumstances turned against him. It kind of reminds me a lot of what's going on in the world today because there's a lot of believers that say, well, you know, I've been doing this and I've been doing that, and now I lost my job, I've lost my health, I've lost this, I've lost that. They're going through a lot of hardships right now, and, you know, Job was written for that. It's 42 chapters long. We're here at the end of Job. But all throughout Job, it's the, the fundamental issue is, why did this happen to Job? That's the fundamental issue. The first few chapters is when uh, Satan wants to destroy Job. But God said that he's not going to be. He said, you can do everything, just don't kill him. He said, Job will not curse me. You can do everything to him, just don't kill him. And some of us, you know, you may feel like that's where you're at. You may feel like everything in your life has been taken away except for just that. But you know, Job, he never cursed God. Even when his wife said, just curse God and die, he didn't do it. He didn't do it. He held on to his integrity. He held on to his faith in God. But he lost everything. He lost his income. He lost his farm. And he lost his children, at least for a season, at least for a season. One of the things that happened, though, is Job had three friends. You can call them friends because the Bible calls them friends, but I wouldn't call them friends. But Job's three friends started out okay. They came to Job after Job suffered the the utmost destruction. There's no destruction like Job faced. And, And when Job was at the bottom of the barrel, his friends came to him and didn't know what to do. They sat beside him and they wept for a week. At that point in time, they were friends. At that point in time, that's what Job needed. He needed just somebody. You know, sometimes when you're hurting, you don't need a Hallmark card. You just need someone to love you. You just need someone to hug you. You just need someone to to just sit next to you and weep with you or or just to drink a cup of coffee with you. And sometimes a, a cute saying from Hallmark doesn't make a difference. And and for those first few days, Job had that. And then after seven days, everybody began to try to figure out why this was happening to Job. His three friends blamed him. Well, you know, it must have been something that you did. Because if you were righteous, this wouldn't happen to you. But iniquity is repaid with destruction and you're in a life of destruction, you must have iniquity in you. Job didn't heed that, but he, he walked through it. And then he began to question, well, you know, I don't know why God's doing this. And he began to speak presumptuously. And how many of you know God corrected Job? It's the same thing that we were talking about earlier. It was that, that voice that Elijah needed at Mount Horeb changed his life. It set him back on the right course. 
And Job here is kind of like dangling over the Grand Canyon. He's like dangling out there by himself. Everything's been taken away. Nothing's going right. And he doesn't know what he did. And then all of a sudden, God speaks to him. And when God speaks to him, everything changes. And I want you to know that if you'll just get alone with God, draw near to God, and allow God to minister to you, whatever you're going through, God ministering to you in it will change your perspective in it. God will anoint you and equip you for the hour and the trial that you're in, no matter what that hour or trial is. From Daniel in the den of lions to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you run it right here to Job. It was when God spoke, everything changed for Job. And we'll pick it up here in Job 42, verse 1. But I want you to see that when these things befell Job, it wasn't because Job did anything wrong. Job's friends accused him of wrongdoing. How many of you, how many of you, when you haven't done anything wrong, but people begin to chirp and people begin to backbite and people begin to murmur against you and they, they tear you down when you need them to lift you up. That's one of the most hurtful things. When, when people begin to tear you down, when you need them to hold you up the most, it inflicts a deep spiritual wound. And I always say, there's no wound like a church wound. There's no hurt like a church hurt, because those are the people that we expect the most to support us. We expect our church family, we expect our church friends to have our back. And in those, in those seasons when, like Job here, he didn't do anything wrong, but his friends accused him of wrongdoing. It inflicted a deep spiritual wound, but I want you to see that the sting of that wound was removed when God began to speak to Job. Now, don't miss this. Don't skip over it. For you to hear God's voice, you're going to have to draw near to God. You're going to have to get on your knees or, you know, some of us aren't able to get on our knees. Get on your knees in the attitude of your heart. But get alone before God and begin to cry out to God and expect to hear God and God will speak to you through the word, through his spirit. But get alone with God because it's that, that still small voice that will set you back on the right path. That still small voice will minister to you uh, just like that bomb from Gilead. It will, it will run over your soul and it will bring restoration where there's been desolation. Now watch this in, in verse number one, Job 42 verse one. This is after his closest friends inflict the deepest wound. You know, I, I was thinking about that earlier. I, I'm going to get to it. Just hang on. I, I was thinking about that earlier because the friends that he had, the friends that he had, you know, that's the ones he expected to support him. You know, and it, it, from the appearance of Scripture, it didn't hurt as bad when his wife questioned him. It didn't hurt as bad when his wife questioned him, but it was his, his friends, his church family, his, those people the, the, that are supposed to be like iron sharpening iron, it's supposed to be having my back when I'm weak, help me to stand. It's those people that kind of let him down the most. So 
after God speaks to Job, look what happens here in, in 42 verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord. This is after, after the Lord spoke to Job's heart. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do everything and that no thought can be withheld from thee. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understood not things too wonderful to me for me, which I knew not. In other words, Job saying, Lord, I was speaking things I didn't even know. I was just talking. I was talking the talk, but I didn't know you. I didn't understand. I was letting things come out of my mouth that I understand not. He's properly answering God. The Bible says that, that, that reproof, reproof does more to a righteous man than a hundred stripes to a fool. And God here is reproving this righteous man. He's saying, you got off course. You began to speak things you don't even know anything about. Where were you when I created the earth? Where were you when I created the oceans? Where were you when I created the stars? You think you know this. You don't know anything yet, Job. And Job said, you're right, God. You're right. I uttered what I understood not, things too wonderful for me. Look at verse 4. Here I beseech thee, I will speak. I will demand of thee and declare thou unto me. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eyes seeth thee. Wherefore, I abhor myself. You hear that? When was the last time you heard somebody say that? Job said, wherefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. So, the Lord speaking to Job moved him to a repentant attitude. He said, you know what, Lord, you're going to have your way in this. I'm not going to tell you how it's going to be. You're going to tell me how it's going to be, and I'm going to smile and like it. I'm going to repent. I abhor myself for even thinking that I understand why you're doing what you're doing. I'm going to relinquish that. I abhor myself, and I'm going to repent in dust and ashes. And I would contend with you right now that we need more people abhorring their self and repenting in dust and ashes than pontificating on Facebook Live about how they know what's really going on in the world today. You see, God is doing things in the world today, but we just need to make sure we're hanging on to God. God is shaking things, but we need to make sure we're holding on to him. God will sort it out. God will pan it out, but we need to make sure that we're close to the shepherd. And in the season that we're in right now, we need to be like Elijah. When he went to that Mount Horeb and God wasn't in the, the earthquake or the wind or the fire, but he was in a still small voice. We need to get alone with God and allow the voice of God to mend us in our broken places. And when Job, look, Job's life was flipped and turned upside down. His, his life was flipped and turned upside down. And yet, now he's saying, even though I'm at the, would you say that Job was at the bottom of the barrel? I think we could say Job was at the bottom of the barrel right here. He can't really get much lower than where he was. And yet, he still abhorred himself 
and repented in dust and ashes. Why? Because he knew what he needed to do. When he had heard the voice of God and been touched by the presence of God, he repented. That's the proper response to a soul meeting God. All throughout the Bible, when Elijah, uh, when Isaiah saw God in his temple, he said, you know, I, I need to die. I'm a man of unclean lips. John, the, the apostle, when he saw Jesus in his resurrected form, he fell down as dead. When, when men truly get a glimpse of God and see God in his glory and understand God in his magnificence, we repent, we fall down, and like Job said, in dust, and in ashes. That is the proper response to the soul. How many of you know the story doesn't end there? This is, what, this is what I want you to see, though. This is what I want you to see. The story doesn't end right here because a lot of times we hear the story in Sunday school and we say, yeah, well, you know, God corrected Job and then God restored Job. Well, there's a little bitty uh, section of Scripture in between those two acts. In between those two acts, the, I, be, I would call it Job's final test. Job's final test. You know, for 42 chapters, hear somebody say, for 42 years, I've been waiting on you. But for 42 chapters, Job's been tested and tried and hung out to dry, and his final test is yet to come. Here in his final test, it's about to come. The Lord speaks to the three friends. So God corrects Job, and then God turns to the three friends. It says, it was so that after the Lord had spoken these words unto Job, the Lord said unto Eliphaz, the Temanites, my wrath is kindled against thee and against thy two friends, for you have not spoken of me the thing that is right as my servant Job hath. In other words, you were, you were saying and trying to speak on my behalf, but you don't know what you're talking about. That's what God's saying. You and your two friends, y'all did that. Therefore, take unto you now seven bullocks, seven rams. Go, listen to this, go to my servant Job and offer up yourselves a burnt offering. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for him will I accept. Do you hear that? the confidence that God had in Job. Just like at the beginning of the book of Job, God told Satan, he said, try Job. He's not going to curse me. He's a righteous man. He won't turn his back on me. He's a righteous man. God had confidence in Job at the beginning and God has confidence in Job at the end. But the final test is still yet to come. So he said, um, my servant Job shall pray for you. Doesn't say he might. He doesn't say he might. He said, my servant Job will pray for you. And let, let's continue in that. He said, for him will I accept, lest I deal with you after your folly, in that you have not spoken of me the thing which is right, like my servant Job. Now, here we go. Verse 9 and 10, last two verses. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuite and Zophar the Nahamite, went and did according as the Lord commanded, the Lord also accepted Job. Now listen to this. How many of you know 
that whenever these friends came back to Job, we're on, look, we're on the backside of you letting me down. You've told me that everything's gone wrong in my life because of me. But I know, at least I'm pretty sure, I haven't sinned against God. As far as I know, there's no iniquity. That's what Job was saying. And those friends that tried to turn him the wrong direction come to him at the end of the trial. This is at the end of the trial. And most of us, when we saw those three friends coming, we would say, what are you doing here? Didn't I tell you to leave me? You hurt me when I was at my weakest moment. You inflicted the most damage. You were close to me, and then you stabbed me in the back. You let me down. You didn't hold me up. You let me down. And when he saw these three friends coming, that's what most of us would do. We would say, I don't want any part of you. I've already changed the locks. Uh, I put up security cameras. Get out of here before I call the police. I don't want anything to do with you. But look what Job does. Look what happens to Job. It says in verse 10, evidently he prayed. Because look at verse 10. And the Lord turned the captivity of Job. The, the captivities, the bondage, the iniquity, the hardships. God turned it. God turned it. Listen to this. The Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. How powerful is that? The, we always think, well, you know, at the end of Job, Job gets corrected by God, and then God begins to restore all the things in his life that were destroyed. Not so. Those things were not restored to Job until Job prayed for his friends. Let's read that. That's Job 42.10. The Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Also, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Do you see that what the hinge that turned everything around in Job's life is when Job prayed for those that let him down the most? That's powerful. That is forgiveness. And that is the same forgiveness that God expects us to give toward others. That's the same forgiveness that God expects us to give toward others. But you know why? Because God forgave you and God forgave me. And that forgiveness that God forgave us with is far greater than anything you would ever forgive anyone else for. That forgiveness, it was only after God spoke to Job. There's two things. There's two things that we see where Job found restoration in. Restoration never came to Job's house until one, God spoke to him, and two, he prayed for those that hurt him. That, that will turn your affliction into a testimony like nothing else will. But it was, it was in this moment that his biggest test came. Most, most people would fail in that hour. But you know, the Lord said that if you're not willing to forgive others, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you your trespasses. And so, you know, sometimes we, we think, well, you know what, I'm praying. And, and I want to tell you, you can look at this scripture and, and you can just say, 
if Job would have earnestly prayed, but not prayed for his friends. You know what I'm talking about? You know that one person that has hurt you, that one person that stabbed you in the back or let you down, if they wanted, to, if they came to you for prayer, but you shut the door on them, it doesn't matter how earnest you would pray any other way. Nothing will change until your attitude of the heart changes toward that person. I'm going to take you back to Mark 11 real quick, and then, and then we'll go to another passage. So turn with me back to Mark 11 in verse 25. Now, what's powerful about this, this concept, Job was a man of integrity, and he had faith, and he was righteous. But it is complete faith that Job exuded at the end. And I heard, I heard one minister say one time that, you know, the Bible says that God gave him twice what he had. And you see in there that he began to have children again. He had sons and daughters. And you know what's awesome about the Lord is the children of, of Job's that passed away. Those children, they only were gone temporarily. You know, the, the minute that Job goes to heaven, there's a reunion. It, it, just like whenever David lost his son, uh, the, David got up. David quit praying after his son died and went to heaven. David got up, dusted himself off, anointed himself, and went and ate. And they said, what are you doing? And he said, well, you know what? My son can't come where I am anymore. But one day, I'll go where he is. In Job, in the same way, you know, it's not that he lost his children forever. It's just a temporary separation. But the Bible says that uh, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so if they died in the Lord, we know that when we die in the Lord, when we're absent from this body, we're going to be present with the Lord and we all going to be standing around that throne, around that glassy sea, and we're all going to have a, a, a blessed and happy reunion in glory land. And we're going to get excited about that. But, but um, the, the thing that I want you to see in this, though, is that faith and forgiveness are tied together. Faith and forgiveness are tied together. You know, uh, some preachers, they use Mark 11, uh, verse 23. That's one of the foundational passages for faith. That's one of the foundational passages for faith. But, you know, a lot of times we leave off the other half. Faith and forgiveness are tied together. It doesn't matter how much faith you have if you have an unforgiving heart. The Lord said, when you stand, verse 25, when you stand praying, forgive if any have ought against any, that your Father also, which is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Now, that is a, a powerful scripture, and we're going to uh, close over in the book of James, chapter 5. So, if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me over there, James, chapter 5. And we, we know here, this is where we see the, the prayer um, of anointing, the prayer for anointing. But in light of, of what we just saw, I want you to see that faith and forgiveness are tied together. It doesn't... You, you can declare all you want, decree all you want. You can stand on the rooftop and shout. But if you have bitterness or unforgiveness in your heart, your prayer will be rendered ineffective. 
Sin keeps you from the appearance of prayer, but unforgiveness keeps you from the effectiveness of prayer. So look in, in uh, James chapter 5, verse 15. It says, well, let's begin with the verse 14. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, I just got to insert right here. We're going to be doing a, a study um, in the next week or two on, on the church. And a lot of times people say, well, I am the church. I don't have to go to church. I am the church. But when you see a scripture like this, it lets you know the church is more than you. It says, call for the elders of the church. Well, if you're the church, who's the elder of the church? The church has got to be more than you. It's got to be more than you. And you, so who are you going to call yourself? You're going to dial yourself on the phone, anoint yourself with oil? I know it says, let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him. Let them pray over him, anointing him with the oil in the name of the Lord. Now listen to this. Faith and forgiveness tied together. The prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Listen, confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. You see, it's the, it's the prayer that comes from the righteous man that does the availing that you believe for. You can have all the faith in the world, but it's not going to avail if you're not righteous. It is the effectual, fervent prayer of the righteous that availeth much. And sometimes we wonder why our prayers are hindered, and God wonders why we're not righteous. Sometimes we wonder why things, this mountain's not moving. I've been praying, I've been confessing, I've been doing this. But when we have bitterness or unforgiveness in our hearts or in our souls, we can't exactly say, like the Bible says here, that we are a righteous man and our prayers availeth much. But it is that truth, that reality where we see faith and forgiveness interconnected, and, and they always are every time you see those because God is trying to get us to understand there is a clear implication, a clear implication. When you go to, you go to Mark 11, then you can also look in, in, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, and then we took you over there to see Job in, in chapter 42. Nothing changed in his life. His life did not get restoration. He didn't find the restoration until he prayed for his friends. And here you see the same thing. So it, it is there's a clear implication from Scripture that unforgiveness will hinder your prayer. And right now, why are we talking about this? Why are we talking about this? 
Because right now, we need the church to pray. We need to pray as children of God like never before. We need to pray for our pastors. We need to pray for our churches. We need to pray for our elders. We need to pray for our brothers and our sisters in Christ. We need to pray for the lost. We need to pray for the president, for the military, for doctors, for those in the hospitals, for those that are sick. We need to pray for our nation. But we have to make sure that God searches our hearts and when we have bitterness or unforgiveness in there, look, you have to decide what you would rather have. You have to decide what you would rather have. Would you rather have that bitterness and that unforgiveness or would you rather have a prayer life that availeth much? You, you have to have one or the other. And a lot of times, people would rather get bitter. You, you, you should see some of the things that people get bitter about in churches. They get bitter because somebody sat in their chair or somebody took their parking spot or nobody asks them to teach. Everybody else gets asked to teach. Nobody asked me to teach. Well, come to church. You might. But, you know, there's silly things that we get all kinds of sideways about and then we begin to get bitter, and then we begin to grow and get cemented feet because of our unforgiveness. But it is, uh, it is when we have a forgiving heart that we'll see our faith begin to soar. And I want to encourage you to just you know, say, Lord, I don't know what is going on in my heart, but if there's anything in there, if there's anything in there, I want to let it go. Lord, search my heart. Try me, Lord. Try my heart. You know, the, the, the Bible says that our hearts are deceitfully wicked. Your heart will lie to you. Your heart will, will make you feel like you are exactly right, that they shouldn't have done what they did. Your heart will, uh, your heart will tell you that you've done no wrong. But our hearts are deceitfully wicked, according to the Bible in Jeremiah and it's in that place we have to trust God more than our own hearts. We have to trust the authority of God's word more than our feelings. And when it comes to this subject, we have to turn to the Lord and say, Lord, search me, try me. Lord, if there's any wicked or false way within me, Lord, I want it out. I want you to expose it, put your finger on it, Lord. I want release from it. And that's what God wants because God wants you to be effective in the kingdom of God. What we need right now are effective prayer warriors. We need men and women who are prayer warriors whose prayers move mountains. And I want you to know that, that God's not a respecter of persons. He, you know, if you will begin to operate in faith and operate also in forgiveness, God will not only use you, but God will bring restoration to you that no matter what anybody else has done to you, God will have your back. God will restore you what, what, what the world takes from you. But God will do that when you begin to do what God says to do. And I just want to encourage you right now as we come to a close uh, to, to go back over these scriptures and look at Job and look, look at when his captivity turned. Captivity never turned. Captivity never turned until he prayed for the people that let him down. 
And in your life and in my life, we need to think about that. We need to think about, you know, who are the people in our lives that have let us down? There may be, you know, somebody was going to mentor you or somebody was going to help you and they didn't. Somebody was going to call you. They had a job for you, but they they gave it to someone else. Or maybe they were going to marry you, but they decided to marry somebody else. Or maybe they were going to do this for you and they decided to do this for somebody else. When, when it comes to a situation like that, you have to look at it in the light of Scripture and go back to Job 42. Job, and he, look, I want you to see that he didn't have a promise of restoration. God didn't say, if you pray for these guys, I'll restore you double what you had. He didn't have that. He just had rebuke and then repentance. And out of rebuke and repentance, Job did what God wanted him to do. And I want you to know that God will use you and me the same way. He expects us to operate in forgiveness. Why? Because he forgave us. Back to that parable. The master forgave the servant. And the master has forgiven us. And he expects us to extend grace to others. And I want to say one last thing before we close it. You know, right now in the, in the season that we're in right now, we need to get in a good practice of giving grace to other people. You don't know what they're going through. You don't know the battles they're in. You don't know the struggles they're in. You don't know what it's like to walk in their shoes. And everybody is in a new season. Nobody's been to this season yet. It's writing itself right now. Okay, so we need to get into a good habit, a good healthy habit as believers of giving grace to one another, especially in the church world. We need to give grace to one another like never before and and extend forgiveness to those that we think have let us down and watch God use your prayer. I want to encourage you right now. I want to encourage you right now. Pray, pray. Things aren't going to change until God's people pray. The, the no amount of, of um, study and no amount of earnestness compares to prayerfulness. Prayer is what God's waiting on. That's how, you know, I love E.M. Bounds. He said, you know, um, men are always looking for better methods, but God's looking for better men. And then behind that, he said, men are God's method. And the method that he employs on men is prayer. And and I want to encourage you, you want to see things change? Get back to those fundamentals right there, and you'll see God uh, begin to change things, and you'll see the captivity around you begin to turn. I want to pray for you. Father, we bless you tonight. We thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, we thank you for the anointing of your word. We pray, Father, that that anointing would begin uh, like that bomb from Gilead, that it would search our hearts and it would minister to us in those places, in those deep recesses of our hearts, Lord, where we may be let down, where we may be offended, where we may be bitter or unforgiveness. And Lord, we pray that your spirit would begin to wash away the pain as we see our Savior by faith. Lord, we pray that the pain would be washed away. And Lord, we pray that you would begin to do a work of restoration in our souls. And we give you glory for it in Jesus' holy name. Everybody says, 
Amen, amen, amen. Praise the Lord. Hey, we want to thank you for uh, tuning in to our Sunday night live uh, service. We had a great service this morning. Now, a couple of things, just some news tidbits. Tomorrow night, we're going to be praying right here in the sanctuary at 7 o'clock.